Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. And I will read from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will make produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let us ask God's blessing upon his word preached. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is a word that we need to hear, we need to believe, and we need to see lived out and fulfilled. And we pray it may be in our own lives and in the lives of others, so that we may be mutually encouraged by how we hear and how we live. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, some of the very best theology comes in tangible, concrete situations. Uh, it's not uh, a book that we would say is a systematic theology, a, a textbook where there are a bunch of propositional truths under each heading. Uh, those books are valuable, but when you look at a lot of the great theology of the Bible, when it comes through, it comes through as a, as a result of uh, real-life situations. So the book of Romans is a missionary letter, and that uh, is quite the missionary letter. Um, you will get the book of Galatians, where uh, people are falling into works, righteousness, legalism, and so you get this great discourse on what it means to be a true Christian. And you could say that about every book. It comes in a context. Uh, in the context of Paul speaking about money and giving, you have some of the most profound theological principles that you'll find anywhere in God's Word. Uh, so I have no hesitation in saying to you tonight that uh, while I am speaking on uh, money, uh, that would be a disaster to simply say I'm speaking on money, uh, a theological disaster of epic proportions, uh, because what we're talking about here is uh, so much more than that. And uh, I remember, as I've told you before about that uh, somewhat infamous Google review that I was able to find in my notes, but it seems to have been deleted because I went to go and look for it. But I do want to read to you again 
Uh, Aaron it was his name. <laughs> I was hoping it would be Zach, <laughs> but alas, no, unless it was a pseudonym. Uh, I visited the church once. The pastor is a completely rude, and then he said something I can't mention from the pulpit, and desperate to collect money. Never again will I visit this church again. Plenty of other better churches nearby. Uh, that was Aaron. And then Ian, who actually uh, worked at a publishing house that published my book, decided to jump in. Ian from uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And he said, I'm thinking that just by his language, Aaron is a troll. Mark Jones, the pastor, is actually rather amusing. And the only thing he is obsessed with is Liverpool Football Club. Uh, that is still up there, by the way, that part. Now, that said, uh, people who uh, go to churches and hear about money, the point is, are a little bit defensive at times. They are a little bit worried about pastors who do like to talk about money. And then you have those of us in the Reformed theological tradition who have seen some of the excesses of the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, and so we shy away from speaking about things like God blessing us if we do something. In fact, a very fine young man in our church came up to me this morning after the service in Surrey. Uh, we'll call him Daniel. And uh, we, he was talking to me about how, you know, when you talk about things like uh, blessings and rewards in heaven, it does still sort of strike us as a bit uncomfortable to speak of. And I pointed him to a rather fine book on the matter uh, that I'd written and uh, hope to collect some money from if he buys it. Uh, <laughs> but he then confessed he doesn't quite get through all of my books. That's true, Daniel. And I said, at least you're reading them, Daniel. Uh, so he's done very well today, this young man. Uh, learning about theology, admitting that he doesn't get through all of my books, and uh, I'm very happy about that. So uh, what can we say with all of our sort of fears and anxieties about money? What can we say about the theology of giving? Well, Paul apparently doesn't feel embarrassed because he talks extensively about money in 2 Corinthians. You can begin in chapter 8 and go all the way through to chapter 9. You've basically got two chapters on money. So what are the principles of stewardship? A few points by way of introduction, but how we actually handle money is a revelation of our spiritual condition. That is going to be a point that is made tonight. How you handle money is a revelation of your true spiritual condition. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, nobody can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. So he is talking about someone's whole life can be dictated by who they serve, and the person may either serve God or they will serve money, but they can't serve both at the same time. Later in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 19, the disciples will say, we have left everything to follow you. But then Jesus says, and you will receive a hundredfold. There are promises made to those who are prepared to make sacrifices for the Lord. Now, 
as I said earlier, some might say, well, this is uh, responding to a specific situation in Jerusalem. And the point that I want to make is that these principles that we are offered here always come in particular settings. That's how things happen. So there is the principle that God and Christ are with wherever two or three are gathered, he is there with them. And people will say, yes, but that's in the context of church discipline. And the point is, yes, it is in the context of church discipline, but it is a basic principle that God has spoken to us that he will be with two or three in a very unique covenantal presence when they are gathered. And that just so happens in the context to be in church discipline. Now, Notice what Paul does when he opens up. He says, the point is this, obviously having spoken already at length on the topic, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He's obviously taking a a picture of agriculture and a farmer, and the degree to which the farmer wants to Uh, yield a crop will be determined by how much he sows. So you don't go out with one seed and say, I want a massive crop this year, one seed, and you throw it and expect a massive crop. If you want a larger crop, you need a larger seed. That's just how it works. And this is a biblical principle that is followed up on. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, you will find that whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. A man reaps what he sows, and that is in the context of doing good to people, especially the household of faith. Now, what does Paul say in verse 6? Well, the first thing he says is that the seed that we sow is from God. So the reward is God rewarding His own gifts. What we receive And what we sow, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from above. When you are sowing, you are actually sowing that which God has given to you. So if you're going to be rewarded for that which you've sown, it is actually, to use a phrase by Augustine, God crowning his own gifts. God presents a gift and then he puts a crown on that gift. That's how you're to think of this. God crowns his own gifts gifts. The second thing you need to see from this is that the money that we have to give to others is not money that is given away. You are not to think that you are giving away money, but that you are sowing seed. If you think of your giving as giving away money, it's going to be a lot harder to give. If your theological perspective is wrong on giving, Why would you want to give if you're just giving money away? If you believe that you are like a farmer sowing seed, that you are investing in the kingdom, it's going to be a lot easier to give. But then when we think about this giving, like the farmer, we need to think about the harvest that we want. You can't escape the fact that the analogy that's being drawn between the farmer and his crop is the analogy that's being drawn between the Christian and their giving. So, if you are a farmer, do you want a large crop or a small crop? And that's a decision that you have to make. The final point before we carry on is to say that it is morally right to desire a large crop as a motive for sowing. 
There's nothing wrong with that. If you want a large crop, then you're going to need to sow with a large seed. You can't go, well, I am so pious, it would be wrong to have such a large crop. I'll just have a little crop. I'll be content with my little garden here. I said to my son Thomas the other day, I said, you know, uh, we were driving in Richmond. And one of the strange things about driving in Richmond, among many strange things about driving in Richmond, is that you will see a palace and then you'll see a shack. And it's on the same road. And then another palace and then another little shack, and they're all on the same road, and it's not normal, right? In most places, you have palaces beside each other, or shacks beside each other, but Richmond, it's, there's no rules. <laughs> and he looked at this one house, and he couldn't believe the size. Of it. He says, how much do you think that's worth? And I just threw out, like, at least 10 million, Thomas. I says, but, you know, we have a nice house. He says, yeah, not a very nice garden. It's tiny. I would love a nice big garden. After having this tiny, pathetic piece of grass, I would love a nice big garden. But nobody has nice big gardens in Vancouver. Even rich people don't have nice big gardens in Vancouver usually. If I want a nice big garden, I'm going to have to sow a lot to get that nice big garden. That's the point. So here he says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. You will get what you give, in a certain sense. Now, why is it important to speak this way? Well, it's important from a pastor's perspective because I have to keep the commandments from the pulpit as well as in life. And if I were not to preach on this, I would be breaking the sixth commandment because that is the preservation of life. And the preservation of life is the well-being of all people, especially your flock. You shall not kill. The positive is you shall bless. You shall help others. It is also keeping the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. So, I do not want you to steal. I do not want to steal. And there may be some who are stealing from God. There are some who are not giving to God. They need to be commanded to trust God. And it is also the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Perhaps you covet so many other things you're not able to give to the work of the Lord. So, with that introductory verse there, notice in verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each one. This is an individual responsibility. I wish I had practiced this better with my own children, but I love it. I love it. Let me affirm this in the strongest possible language. I love it when I see a child put some money in the offering, unless they've stolen it from their parents. But it's so nice when you see a child who feels like they have a little bit to give. And we know the Lord loves that. He will say it later. Each one it is not age-restrictive. If you've got 10 cents and you are in the habit as a child of giving 10 cents because you don't have a lot of money, that's still a good habit to be in. You will reap and you will sow and gather and be blessed with that 10 cents that may become a dollar, that may become 10. Who knows what it will become. But it isn't exactly easy to have never done something and then all of a sudden get married and start practicing something you've never practiced before. 
That goes for anything. And it goes for giving. The other thing that Paul is saying here is not just each one, but each one must give as he is decided, purposed. And it's the only time this Greek word is used anywhere in the New Testament. As you have purposed in your heart. This is why I don't actually preach necessarily on the tithe. I think it's a good uh, barometer. People want to use that. I have no objections to that. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that it is a scriptural mandate that you have to give 10% because uh, one of the difficulties is, is that uh, with human beings, what they are like. Is that pre-tax? Is that post-tax? Is that this? Is that that? And all the other. The point that he's saying here is it's something that you have decided, purposed in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Now, My friends, this is one of the great barometers of true spiritual obedience in any realm, not just giving. It must be willing obedience, not forced obedience. Christ went to the cross willingly, not under compulsion. You can put any command here and you would have the same words, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You must go to church, but it should be willingly Otherwise, God will not be pleased if it is under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. That's the willingness of the giver. That's the giver who, as I've said before, puts the smiley face on the check and the deacons uh, are opening up and they count the checks and they see a smiley face there because you're letting them know you're really happy about giving them this money to count. I was so happy when people today were saying, He is risen, and then I said, He is risen indeed. Well, um, maybe, and I don't want to see this, you can put a smiley face on your next check. That might be a bit hard for the electronic bank people here, but the point is, what are you doing that's joyful about your giving? But notice something also. God loves a cheerful giver. How many times in my office with the elders have we said, and how do you know you're a Christian? And they will say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you know what we do? We all sit there and smile and go, ah, yes, that's good. But I'm getting wiser in my old age. And I say, oh yes, and what does the Bible say? How do you know Jesus loves you. And you say, well, because the Bible tells me so. Yes, but what does the Bible tell you? How do you know that? And here's your verse. If some of you should want to uh, reaffirm your faith, here's your verse. God loves a cheerful giver. Here's the syllogism. God loves a cheerful giver. I cheerfully give. God loves me. There it is. God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I'm a cheerful giver. Imagine giving that answer as to why you should be, become a member. That would be amazing. Someone's becoming a member soon. I've just written the exam for you. You need to give cheerfully before we have our meeting. But it's very simple. God loves. Think about that. God loves a cheerful giver. Why would you not want that added assurance apart from embracing Christ by faith, apart from the sacraments, apart from all of the other wondrous ways in which we know we're children of God, we can say, I give cheerfully and God loves me. It's right there in the text. 
but then also giving is part of the consistent Christian life. In verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's an important word in verse 8, and it is all. So the Corinthians are at the same time to be both passive and active. They are those who receive and they are those who give. And the only true Christian giving that ever has existed or will exist are Christians who are first receivers before they are able to then give. God is able to make all grace abound to you. There is the passive. You have received from God so that having all sufficiency because God has made all grace abound to you in all things, you can now be active in every good work with what God has given you. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That quote from Psalm 112. It's a glorious psalm. I hope to preach on it soon. But you remember the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17 before uh, there's the healing of the son. The man of God goes and uh, asks for some water and then for some like a type of bread, a baked uh, bread. And how does she respond? She says, listen, I don't have any left. Once this is, that's it, I'm done. She had very little left. You can read it, 1 Kings 17 verse 8, that little section And she's basically in the position where once this goes, it's done. But what does the man of God say? The man of God says that she will not run out. God will provide. And he provided until the rain came and they could grow more crop. The point was you can never outgive the Lord. He will supply you in all ways. Maybe some of you know 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. And if you are concerned about the uh, rise of Christians accepting homosexuality as a, a lawful lifestyle, you will know this verse. Do not be deceived, and you know the next words, that neither the homosexual offenders or the uh, malakos, the soft, the effeminate will enter the kingdom of God. But you know in that list is not just the homosexual offenders, it is also the greedy. The greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. Anyone who has been a recipient of the grace of God who is able to make all grace abound to you will out of that abundance be someone who is generous with what they have. Why is this so important? It's not that God needs your money. It's that God knows your heart has truly experienced the saving grace of God. So in verse 10 and 11, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is incredible. This is not meant to cause you to be like, you know, I hate hearing sermons on giving. You should be begging for sermons on giving. Look at this. I'm ashamed. 
I should have preached far more on this. Far more. God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase. There's nothing here that's negative. Tell me something in this verse that's negative, that doesn't work out well for you, that isn't a blessing, isn't a promise. Everything is about God blessing you. And everything is about trusting Him. You will be enriched in not just one way or two ways, but in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Why is God giving you more? So that God can raise your standard of giving, not necessarily your standard of living. There is uh, a story about John Wesley. And I, I believe this to be true, but at the time when he was living, if he made 30 pounds, he would give two pounds away. But if he made 60 pounds, he would give 32 pounds away. And if he made 90 pounds, he would give 62 pounds away. His standard of giving increased, not his standard of living. Now, I can assure you, I am not a miser. I am not someone who thinks you should never enjoy yourself. When you go on holiday, I'm almost always happy for you. <laughs> I see someone with a BMW. I don't have any concerns. You can do whatever you want. You can enjoy this life. I have no concerns unless those blessings are the only blessings you're receiving and that you are somehow not enjoying the greater blessing of giving to the Lord's work. Then I would feel sorry for you going on holiday to Mexico or Hawaii. I really would. Then I would feel sorry for you driving a nice car. I really would. Because I would feel as though you have had your reward here and now. And that's very sad, isn't it? For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So when you are able to give, you're not only supplying the needs of God's people and the saints, but also you end up being thankful towards God. One of the most glorious things about the Christian life is when we see God doing something that goes well beyond what we think human beings can manufacture. Uh, it was so funny because um, today uh, I was being a little bit uh, cheeky after the service and uh, I think one or two you can confirm, but I was saying how, you know, I'm a very simple person and uh, easy to, to bless at Christmas time. You know, a nice bottle of wine. Uh, that's all. Nice bottle of wine. You know, if someone's really concerned about their pastor wants to give them something, you get a nice bottle of wine. And that's simple, right? You don't have to worry about, oh, what would he like? You know, some people, they're impossible to buy for. I've been living with my wife for almost 20 years. I still don't know what to get her. But I went for a lovely lunch today. Uh, some of the young adults, Heather, AJ, and uh, Dylan, uh, I don't even know who was there, a uh, bunch of people. Um, no, Dylan wasn't there. It was uh, uh, Julia and that guy she's getting married to. 
Uh, we had a nice lunch. And I thought, you know what, such fine people, I'm going to bring over a nice bottle of wine for them. And it was, right, Heather? She's smiling, there we go. Okay. But you know what was amazing, and this kind of actually hit me. I thought, I'm going to bring a nice bottle of wine to their place. And I'm not joking, someone came to church today who had been to Oregon and bought me a nice bottle of wine. And I thought, you know, this is actually a little bit about how the Lord works. Here you are, you just do something like, oh, a nice bottle of wine, not a cheap one. Give it to these people. They probably don't even know what nice wine is. And then the next minute, someone comes walking into church with a nice bottle of wine for you. I lost nothing today and I got to taste the nice wine. And I'm actually telling you, that's a lot of the times God. You do something so menial and simple and small where you're just trying to bless someone, God starts blessing you right then and there. Or it may be later. You can't outgive God. He can take a simple, small, mundane, little thing like that but imagine God's power and wisdom and glory being extrapolated over the things that we put our heart and mind to to do for the kingdom of God. You cannot outmaneuver, outthink, outbless anything God. He will bless you. And I think some Christians have robbed themselves of the wondrous blessings that God is able to do through His providence because they are lacking faith that God will Honor these words. This is where some of your greatest faith is required. You say, oh, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but you don't have enough faith to believe that God who sent His Son to die for your sins is also able to orchestrate a few providential matters to bless you with regards to the seed that you're sowing. Now, as Paul continues, he says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Here again is another wondrous reason to give. If you give for the sake of the kingdom, other people are going to glorify God because of you. Have you ever thought about blessing other people? Have you ever thought that you are able to bless other people by them glorifying God? I get regular emails and messages from Chester Chummy in South Africa. He is glorifying God because some of your hard-earned money that you make, that you give to the church, is enabling him to serve people in a place where they are destitute and have no money and they are praising God because you are giving. That's an example. People are glorifying God because you are being generous while they long for you and pray for you. What can Chester give to me? He can pray. He can pray for you, pray for our church. He is glorifying God. He is praying for us. We are giving to Him to supply His needs. And we are sowing seed. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Remember, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well in John 4, if you knew the gift of God. Who is the gift of God? The gift of God is Jesus. And the only thing that can help you make sense of everything that Paul is writing here, and the only person that can help you to actually believe that it is good and right to give to the work of the kingdom is the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of His life and death if you really have believed that He has died for your sins, that He is going to take you to glory, 
that He is building His church, that He is supplying your every need, then you can never ever be in a situation where you need to worry that He will take care of you. You don't need to leave here distressed at all. You need to leave here confident in God's ability to use people like us to do great things for His name, His glory, His kingdom, His people, and that we will rejoice at how exciting that can be in the Christian life. One last word by way of application. Are there some of us who maybe do need to rethink how and what they are giving their effort, time, and money and attention to? It's just a question. And it's a question born from actually facing this passage face on. That do you really want true blessing? Or are you content with the world's blessings? Because a lot of the blessings that Christians enjoy are no different than a lot of the blessings non-Christians enjoy. It is working hard and buying something with that hard-earned money. My father, my brother, my friends, they get those blessings too. But one thing the world doesn't and can never understand is when we go outside of ourselves and God is able to do immeasurably more because we have given for His work and His kingdom and His glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for this Word and thank You for the reminder. Thank You for the rich theology of giving and what it means for us as Christians and what it means for us in terms of who You are. And We pray, Lord, we will not be fearful. We will not be disgruntled with the thought that sowing seed is drudgery, but rather that we will be excited with the idea that as we sow seed, there will be a crop that you produce so that we may have more seed to sow, so that you may see glory come to the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.